0: Well, good morning again. When I told Chad I had a few issues with my throat and my voice, I said I might not be able to preach a whole sermon. And he said, don't worry, just preach 15 minutes. They'll love it. (laughs) Don't get your hopes up. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning as we study the Word, We recognize how it applies to us individually. But more than that, Father, we pray that we would recognize who you are, what you've done, how much you love your people, and how you've worked through the ages in the lives of your people. Father, give us your grace, wisdom, understanding, and a love for you that grows as we study the scriptures. In Christ's name I pray, amen. A friend of mine died three days ago. Uh, He was rushed to Gastonia Memorial Hospital with heart problems and COVID-19. And they turned him away and said they didn't have room for him and sent him to Shelby. I didn't know Shelby even had a hospital. Uh, He was a widower. His only child was in another state. He was all alone in the intensive care unit with no family, no friends, nobody allowed to visit. And as I thought about that, I wished that I had been able to go to the hospital and meet with him and read a passage, at least something, just to comfort him. And one of the passages that I thought about, that I thought if I were there, if I could talk to Frank, I would read this. From Revelation 21, it says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I wish I could have read that. And said, Where you're going. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who became a believer at a young age, going to a church in Gastonia, I want you to be reassured of the fact that you're going to be there in the presence of the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty God, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest easy, dear friend. Our God is a good God, and our confidence in life, and when we face death, our confidence is in Him. Amen? Our God's a good God all the time. Now I have to say that having just quoted from the book of Revelation. To understand life and death and the afterlife. Don't start with the last book in the Bible. Bad place to start. To understand God you need to understand the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. You have to have the context to understand all of the New Testament well start with the creation story and Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and then for the next 46 chapters of Genesis if you're just starting to read the Bible you'll see the unfolding of God's plan and God's people you'll see how Abraham and Abraham's son and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the 12 sons of Jacob, who was later called Israel, with the 12 tribes of Israel. If you, don't, if you don't get the 12 tribes of Israel later on in the book of Revelation, you're not gonna know what they're talking about with the 12 this and the 12 that, and the candlestands and the bowls and the thrones and so on. So, to understand the New Testament well, dig into the Old Testament and study it And you'll see the story of the people of God, the nation of Israel, as it unfolds and how God deals with them. And then you'll take transferable concepts out of the Old Testament and say, well that was then and now is now and it doesn't have anything to do with me. Yes it does, there are great transferable concepts and we're gonna talk about some of that today when we talk about the book of Daniel. Later on in the Old Testament, I think it's fascinating to watch how the people of God and the nation of those 12 tribes and the procession of their leaders, how they interacted with God, how did they do? Did they revere God, did they stay faithful to God, and how did God treat them? To learn more about who God is and how He acts, watch His character unfold, the character of God, as it unfolds in the Old Testament, and watch how mankind reacts and interacts with God. Remember, if you think back to your understanding, the things that you've studied before, where did these 12 tri- tribes come from that are referred to over and over in the Bible? Where did they come from? Well, they came from the sons of Jacob, whose name later changed to Israel, as I said. Ten of the tribes stayed together and moved. They rebelled against what was going on, and they, they shifted and went up into the northern area, north of what we would now call Israel, up in the northern section, and and there was a divided kingdom, and their kingdom of those 12 tribes was called Israel. For a while, the term Israel just meant those guys. They had more of everything. They had more people, more money, more land, more opportunity, but they also had terrible leadership. Meanwhile, the other two tribes, stayed down in the area that we think of around Jerusalem. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they didn't have as much money, they didn't have as much people, they didn't have the opportunities. What did they have? What did Jerusalem have that was essential? As Jews, they had the temple. The temple, capital T-H-E, the temple. What was the temple all about? That That was where they really worshipped God. It was where they felt connected to God. It was where the presence of God was felt. It was where they had everything important to them. And so what happened? Well, the ten tribes up north assimilated into the culture. That's a scary phrase. They assimilated into the culture of the world around them and began worshiping idols, just like everybody around them. So their religion became polluted. Ultimately, in the book of Isaiah and in 2 Kings, we learn that the Lord allowed the northern kingdom of the ten tribes to be defeated by the Assyrians and then exiled. Because... They had decided not to follow the one true God and worship other gods and instead of holding fast to their identity as the people of God, they were swayed by the circumstances of their lives and the temptations around them. Transferable concept, it's easy to become assimilated into the culture. We live in a city with probably over a thousand churches, a church on every corner, and we don't have a temple that's the, the one place that we go to worship. We've got all these churches and stuff, but in spite of all the churches, it's easy to get assimilated into the culture of Charlotte, North Carolina. Our religion can be very affected by the world around us, the practice of our religion. If you don't think that a person's religion can be impacted by the culture, have you heard about Afghanistan and the Taliban and the Taliban's fanaticism regarding their faith? Look at what the culture, (laughs) look, this slide just tickles me. I just found this slide. Look at this slide. What are they doing? I don't know if you can see it very well, they're playing bumper cars. The Taliban now has more wealth, more opportunity, more entertainment available to them and they're being told by their leaders, quit taking selfies because they're getting cell phones, they've got all this stuff and they're being what? receptive and excited about the things that the world has to offer that they've never had before can christians fall into the same temptation afghanistan's hardcore taliban soldiers we hope and we pray for them, and we pray for their spirituality, and we pray that instead of being influenced by the culture of bumper cars and games and entertainment that the West has to offer, we pray that they will hear about the truth of Jesus Christ, and be influenced by Christians who remain faithful, amen? Point number one, pray for the Christians in Afghanistan for their witness, for their safety and security, for their strength and their endurance. What happened to the other two tribes? The little tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the guys down south, there are less of them, they're poorer, they've got the temple. So the folks down in Jerusalem lasted about 150 years longer than the 10 tribes up north. The 10 tribes, after a certain amount of time, had lost their influence and were overcome, captured, exiled, dragged off into slavery. But the two tribes in the Jerusalem area, Judah and Benjamin, they lasted longer. They called that kingdom Judah for a while, They lasted about 150 years, and then they too were overwhelmed, and they were defeated by foreigners, a different group of foreigners. This time it's the Babylonians. So what? Daniel chapter one picks up the thread. And in Daniel chapter one, I want you to consider the identity of a person who is totally committed and consecrated to God, and what the transferable concept is going to be for us. Daniel chapter one, verse one, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That was around 600 BC. And it says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the land of Shinar. He was the son of the founder of the Chaldean Empire. He was known for being very smart, militarily, aggressive, but also very wise, but very pagan. Shinar, in that Phrase is Babylon. It's basically referring to the capital of Babylonia, the area down south of Baghdad. The house of God that he refers to there is the temple. Back in Jerusalem, that's the temple. And what it says is that Nebuchadnezzar mm, took some of the vessels of the house of God. And here's the deal about vessels of the house of God. If you've ever been to a Catholic church, you've seen them. Um, treating the chalice very carefully as they clean it and prepare it. It gets cleansed. A vessel in the house of God in the Catholic tradition is cleansed first and then the wine is poured into it and the wine is consecrated. The host, the platen for the host is cleansed and then consecrated. It's a A cleansing first, consecration later. What does consecration mean? Consecration means set apart as holy for the purposes of God. Set apart as holy for God to use. And that applies to people as well. And that's the important point. Watch as Daniel's story unfolds. First of all, why did Nebuchadnezzar bother to go? the whole distance from south of baghdad all the way west if you look at the map and figure it out you go man that's a long way to go i was thinking about it yesterday probably took them 3 months to take an army all the way over there why bother to go mess with little jerusalem all right. long way to go for nothing but in first chronicles chapter 29 verse 6 it talks about the temple they gave, back in First Chronicles, it says the leaders of father's houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands of hundreds, and officers over of the king's work, and they gave for the service of the house of God. Listen to this, if you wonder why Nebuchadnezzar made the trip. They gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron and whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord. So when the temple is being dedicated, the word goes out and everybody's supposed to bring all their stuff and to put it in context, we paid $472,000 for this property. 472 and it was a steal. How much was all of that stuff worth? I put it in today's dollars. I did all the calculations of of derricks and all that stuff and tried to figure it out. And basically, here's what they gave. $9.5 billion worth just of gold. I didn't count the silver and the other stuff. They gave this immense amount of gold for the temple to be consecrated, to have the temple set apart I imagine when you walked into the temple, you really felt like this place is really worth a lot. So Nebuchadnezzar, why did he go? Because he was gonna take all of that stuff, or at least some of it, and cart it back to Babylon. No wonder he laid siege to Jerusalem. No wonder he captured it. But the significance of the temple vessels that he took out of the temple was much more significant than their monetary value, why? Because to the Jews, those were sacred vessels consecrated to God for the worship of the one true God and and it was important to them so that they would remember how high and holy God is and how much they had sacrificed to set that temple up as the place of worship for the one true God. Don't miss the contrast here. It says, Nebuchadnezzar took the consecrated sacred things, the vessels, and put them where? It's two words that kind of tickle you as you look at at the text. Where did he put them? First of all, he put them in the house of his gods. Big contrast. There's the God and then his gods. But it also says he put him in the treasury of his God. It's like, man, these are financially worth stuff. This is, this is a financial seizure. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. And here's where part of his wisdom comes in. Nebuchadnezzar's no dummy. He's a bad guy. He tells his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family of the nobility, in verse 3 and verse 4. Which ones? Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, why? He's taken the smartest kids, young people, and bringing them down there and says to his chief eunuch, the servant, you teach them, you educate them in what? Our language, our literature, our culture. In other words, assimilate those Jewish kids into our culture in a three-year learning plan. The Chaldeans had a reputation for being the intellectual capital of the world. They weren't dummies, but they handpicked some young Jewish captives and wanted to clean them up, educate them, teach them the local language, and then put them to work in the palace of the king. And the funny part is, if you read it carefully, youths without blemish of good appearance. He didn't want ugly dummies around him in the palace. He's the king. He gets to pick. He only wants to be surrounded by beautiful people. Beautiful, smart people. So the king assigned them a daily portion of the food. Here's a good deal. If you're ever captured and taken into slavery and the king says, guess what? I got good food for you. He assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. And of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were... Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Those are great names, by the way. What's the significance of their names in this passage? As you read in the scriptures, especially if you're reading the Old Testament, you're going to run into hard name, hard name, hard name, hard name, and hard name, and you're not going to even know how to pronounce them, and you're going to wonder, what's the significance of all these hard names that I can't pronounce and I can't remember? How many of you, if you put your hands on the top of the Bible, can remember the three names that followed Daniel's? We just read them. We remember their new names. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Why do you remember those names? Because you've heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace... And we've learned those names as children. And in children's church, we're going to teach your children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because that story is really significant and life-changing. But the real significance before that is in verse 6. Because their names are Hebrew names. And in the Hebrew culture, the names meant something. It was like, you know, my middle name is Patrick. I don't know what Patrick means. It's my middle name. And I'm old. And I still don't know what it means. I haven't looked it up. I don't... You know we don't and Darren I don't think I think Darren was just my mom came up with words from outer space I I have no idea what Darren means I saw an article in a newspaper that she clipped out and stuck it in my baby book and there was a bulldog named Darren that she saw in and, and, and so I'm named after an unknown bulldog I guess I don't know but in Hebrew Your name meant something. Daniel means God is my judge. They had names that had spiritual significance. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. Azariah means the Lord has helped. So they all have this spiritual significance. The chief of the eunuchs changed their names and called them Shadrach, Meshach, Obednego, and Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Why? so that they would be more fully assimilated into the culture, so that they would get rid of their Jewishness and erase the memories in their minds of their Jewish culture. He didn't even want them calling themselves one another by by their Hebrew names. It was like blend in better so that you can serve better. Convert to our culture. You'll be a part of our culture, we love you. And we'll call you by your new name and your new identity. And basically he's saying, let's get rid of your old identity. Let's become part of this culture. And they hit a significant complication in their plans to produce well-assimilated, well-educated, well-groomed, attractive servants. And the person of a stubborn, principled, devoted, committed, godly young man. Daniel, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, let me just ask you. If you travel to a foreign country and the king says, Hey, I'd like to meet you. Why don't you come up to the palace and have lunch with me? And you showed up for lunch at the king's palace. And the king says... Hey, I heard that you like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all these different foods and stuff, but look what I've got. And I I can tell you from personal experience, I was at a reception hosted by the Shah of Iran in Tehran, Iran, before the revolution. I was at a reception with my wife, Linda. And the funny part is that to enter the reception, you had to go through one little pair of doors. And prior to the opening of the doors, we were all mixing outside, and there were a thousand of us out in this other room where they were offering little cups of tea and a little hors d'oeuvre. But this was in this enormous building owned by the Shah of Iran, and he was hosting diplomats and the highest ranking people in the military and after a certain time a little bell rang and they opened the door and you were allowed to go in one at a time into the banquet hall and and linda asked me why are we why don't we go and i said we're not allowed to go in yet and she said why not and i said it's in order of rank the highest ranking people of all go in first so the shah went in and then other people went in and the ambassador of the united states went in and then the the four-star generals and the three-star generals and the two-star generals, and she said, when do we get to go in? Last. (laughs) Dead last. Actually, she was dead last. (laughs) But when you go to a banquet hosted by the Shah of Iran, can you imagine what's there? This food is incredible. Caviar from the Caspian Sea. There were tables full of caviar and they were passing it around like popcorn. Incredible food. Daniel said, it's not an issue of what the food is, it's what the food represents and I'm not allowed to defile myself. Why? Because according to Jewish tradition and according to the law, they weren't allowed to eat certain foods. If you know now the the word kosher, They were expected to follow very strict dietary laws. Some food was considered unclean. Therefore, you can't eat it. If you're a devout believer in the one true God, you don't eat that stuff. Here it is in the Bible. Read it. No bacon. For some of you, you would have a hard time with that one. No bacon. No pork. No rabbit no shellfish, no wine that was made by pagans. So there was not just the food, but sometimes the hands that prepared it made it such that you couldn't do it, or what had been done with the food, in particular the wine was a problem because sometimes the pagans would consecrate the wine to their pagan gods and then serve it, and you weren't allowed to touch that either because that was tainted by association with the pagan gods. And so Daniel says, nope, I can't eat it. And the temptation had to be pretty great to accept this. But he was dedicated and principled and devoted. It says, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And stop and think about it. So what was Daniel's response to the temptation? He said, no, can't do it. How big was the temptation to just say, yeah, whatever. I'm a captive and I'm being treated just lovingly and he denied it, God's response. He worked on the heart of the chief of the eunuchs, the guy in charge of Daniel's care. God changed the way that the pagan looked at Daniel. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. His bold stand was risky, controversial, and didn't make sense to a pagan that liked good food and good drink. But his boldness caused them to reconsider not just as a young man that was a slave that was being trained up. I think that the chief of the eunuchs looked at him through different eyes as a young man with a strong conscience and a commitment to do what's right in the eyes of God, his God. But the slave boss was a pragmatist. He wasn't stupid. The king had ordered him to do that. And the king was going to check up and see three years down the road who's got a good complexion, who's strong, who's fit, who's gained weight, and who looks good. The chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. Why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. In other words, good for you for standing on principle, bad idea for me. I might lose my life if this doesn't turn out right. You guys might be committed to eating leafy greens and veggies, but I'm committed to staying alive and not making the king mad at me. Pragmatic good decision on the part of the chief eunuch, but instead of rebelling and railing against the injustice, or whining about the unfairness of the king's policies and being browbeaten into saying, okay, I'll just eat whatever you give me, Daniel did this important point. He exercised diplomacy and tact and wisdom as a follower of the one true God. And sometimes we take a stand on stuff as Christians and we make a hard nosed stand against it and we throw diplomacy, tact and wisdom out the window David said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, <clears throat> give it a test. Try me. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them for the, in this matter and tested them for ten days. Test is simple. What's the test? God's ways or man's ways? Stand firm on what God has directed me to do or just do whatever and go with the flow. It's easy to go with the flow. It says God gave them learning and skill and literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Watch how that plays out later on in the book of Daniel. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the the king spoke with them, and among them, all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So what? So what? Daniel made a deliberate resolve to remain faithful to God. His wisdom in dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, refusing to be tainted, was tactful and diplomatic. And he stood his ground. God's response to his steadfast resolve was to bless him and his friends. And God's ongoing, continuing blessing was evident in verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about the king, he was ten times better than everybody else around him. So he gained the reputation in front of the king by God's grace to be someone whom the king could speak with about important matters and make decisions. When we read Romans chapter 12, it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And what it's talking about is Daniel himself understood that he was committed and consecrated to God in all of his life. He had a consecrated identity. He understood. And as Christians, where does that come in? If you remember, I was talking about the vessels being used as they're cleaned up, and then the wine is poured into them and it's consecrated. Christians have been cleaned up. We sing the song, washed by the blood of the Lamb. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ cleaned up, and we should then be consecrated, set apart, as holy vessels to be used by God for His purposes in spite of the culture around us, in spite of the leadership, whether it's good or bad at the moment, we should live with our sense of identity being markedly different than that of the rest of the world as God's people, as genuine Christians, untainted by the world around us and not let our faith and the practice of our faith be tainted or changed by the world around us. Standing fast as Christians. Understanding that our identity is in Christ. Our reliance in life is upon the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Jesus Christ, with whom we are identified. Let me show you a picture. I just This one picture just struck me. If you... I'm looking for the Albertsons and I don't see them. If you were in the military, and you look at this picture, I'm sorry it's hard to see with the lighting the way it is. What can you tell about the guy with the green beret on? If you were in the military, you can tell stuff that people who weren't in the military can't tell. All you can tell if you look at the guy is he's got a lot of stuff on his uniform. He's got badges and decorations and rank insignia and all kinds of stuff. All right, if you were in the military, what rank is that guy? Hard to see. But if you could see it, Norman, get up here and read that stuff. No, I'm just kidding. You can tell his rank, you can tell how long he's been in the military. What's the most important thing you can tell about that guy? You can't see it well enough? He's got a light blue ribbon around his neck with a little medal hanging from it. What is that? He's got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He's got all these awards. He's got the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star, Air Medals, Army Commendation Medal. If you look up all the pictures of all those ribbons that he's got on there, you can tell that this guy is very experienced. He's been around the block. He's earned the right to wear all of these crazy things on his uniform. But what virtue would you expect to find in that guy, one virtue, based on this little blue ribbon around his neck? Courage. He's got the Congressional Medal of Honor. They don't just give that out for showing up. His identity is clear to other people who wear the uniform. When he comes walking towards them, they can tell a lot about him. He's got marksmanship things. He's got parachutist swings. He's got master parachutist badge on his uniform. He's got a... Um, He's got wings of some kind on his uniform, so he's part of a flight crew, all this other stuff. What's the point? What's the point? Your identity as a Christian, a follower of Christ, is important to the world around you. And as a Christian like that soldier and other soldiers looking at him as a Christian, your identity is made evident by the way that you live your lives, by the way that your life is consecrated. Philippians chapter one, verse six, I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it in a day until the day of Christ Jesus. God is doing a good work in you and you are being progressively sanctified, and we build one another up as we are new creatures, and the old is passed away. Behold, new things have come. May we be cleansed, sanctified, set apart for sacred purposes that God has called us to, amen? Pray with me, Lord, thank you for your word. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for your grace in our lives. May we individually be committed and consecrated to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.